Well, good morning. I'm Joe Collins. It is great to be together, as always. Thank you, uh, uh, Lynette and Karen, for honoring our graduates. Congratulations, graduates. It is a great uh, change of life to go from one thing to the next, and, uh, and uh, it's very special, and we're happy to be able to honor that with you. Also, for those of you that don't know, Ellie Taylor was baptized last week. We had an awesome time at her baptism. Of course, so we are in our series, Jesus Worth Following. Our mission as a church is to love and to live like Jesus. Last week, we talked about of all the good things that we can do, loving Jesus really is the most important. Today, I want to talk about our memories, having good memory, having a good memory. So there was this preacher, and uh, he went to a, uh, a, a conference for preachers to, to become a better preacher. Now, you need to know about this preacher that he had a, a problem with his memory. He was memory impaired. And so while he was at the conference, one of the better speakers that came up to speak began his uh, speech with this line. He said, the best years of my life were spent in the arms of a woman that wasn't my wife. Of course, the, the crowd full of Christians gasped. And then he said, and that woman was my mother. And the crowd said, oh, and everybody clapped. And then he had their attention for the next several minutes while he delivered his speech. And so our, our memory-challenged minister wanted to imitate. He wanted to try to do a better job of getting people's attention. So the next Sunday, he stood up in front of his congregation and he said, the best years of my life were in the arms of a woman that wasn't my wife. And of course, the congregation gasped. And he was all excited because he had their attention. And then he forgot what he was supposed to say. And so all that came out was, and I can't remember who she was. <laughs> Having a good memory is important. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for bringing us together today. We're so blessed to be part of such a great fellowship. We pray for your spirit to be with us today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are going to start in Mark chapter 14, verse 12. On the day, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, you've been involved in our series, and you know that we're in the last week of Jesus' life, and that according to the timeline we've been using, and I'm going to show it to you here on the screen, I created a simple little timeline. It would be Thursday, the last week of Jesus's life. So we have Sunday, and by the Jewish calendar, that would have been the month of Nisan, the day, the 10th of the month of Nisan. That was the day of the triumphal entry. Then on Monday, Jesus returned into the temple and he cleansed it uh, of the money changers and called down, uh, called for the, the basically the end of the temple system. Then on Tuesday, he was embroiled in several arguments because these religious leaders were upset at what Jesus was saying about the temple. Then on Wednesday, he takes a day off. He stays in the town of Bethany where he pretty much had stayed that whole week. And instead of going into the, the, the city and into the temple, he stays, has a meal at Simon the leper's house where he's anointed. And then we come to Thursday. Thursday was special. Nisan 14 would have been the Jewish calendar day. And it was the start of Passover and the feast 
of, uh, and the feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, these were actually two separate celebrations that they combined into one week-long festival that began with Passover. Now, I would venture to guess that in this room, most of you know something of Passover, at the very least. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard about it, you've learned about it. If not, that's okay. I'll give you some information on it a little bit later. But I'm venturing to guess that almost no one in this room knows much about the festival or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Have you ever studied that out? Have you ever taken the time to, to dig into what, what was that all about? Honestly, I hadn't done much study of it either until recently. And so I'm really looking forward to sharing with you something that I learned recently that I think that you're going to appreciate learning uh, uh, recently as well. It's the Festival of Unleavened Bread. It was actually a very important time in the Jewish religious calendar. It was a week-long celebration that began with Passover. Three times a year, Jewish males were called by God to present themselves, if they lived anywhere in the vicinity of the city of Jerusalem, they had to present themselves in the temple. One of those festivals was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, became the more dominant of the three festivals. It was the more popular one. When we read, you know, in our, if you think back to our series of Mark and we, we read through the life of Jesus, you find out that he actually celebrated this festival every year, certainly in his adult life, and most likely all through his childhood. His parents would take him down the journey from Galilee, which was in the north part of Palestine, all the way down, uh, I'm sorry, um, yeah, Galilee, all the way down to the south part of Palestine, which is called Judea, a trip of some 50 to 70 miles. They would do it every year for Passover. It was a very significant time in the Jewish calendar. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to learn about the beginning of this festival. Where did it come from? How did it start? Verse 14 of Exodus chapter 12. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must, must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another on the seventh day. Do not work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. So we learn here all the way back in Exodus, this is actually back in the days of Moses. This is back in the days when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, some uh, 1,500 years before Jesus was alive, that God ordained a special week-long festival for the Jewish people. And it was to start right about the same time as Passover, and then it was supposed to run for seven days while, while Passover was only a one-day celebration. And the unique thing about the festival was that they were to cleanse themselves of all yeast in their house. Matter of fact, Jewish tradition today, on Passover night, uh, they will hide pieces of bread in the house and then have the kids after dinner go through the house, find them, and throw them out to cleanse the house. They still sort of... Uh, uh, celebrate this, this part of the feast. And then for seven days, they were not to eat any yeast. And thank God, they were not supposed to work. Don't you love God who wants us to take a week off from time to time and do nothing 
but eat? I mean, that's all they're supposed to do. No work except making food. Very important. So, you know, we have a great God who loves to have a good time. It says specifically that this festival was to celebrate. It was to commemorate. It was to remember the day they left Egypt. The day that they were no longer slaves and they were exodused out of the land of Egypt. Now, I have a little audience participation. One of the curious things to me about the festival was this issue with yeast, the need to cleanse your house of yeast. Does anybody want to take a guess at what is the meaning or what is that all about? Why would God say, cleanse your house of yeast for seven days, not even eat any yeast? Anyone? Yes. I think it's because it's such a small amount that makes such a great change. Okay. So yeast, a little bit of yeast goes a long way, makes a big change. And then also the fact that they had to leave in a hurry, knowing the story a little more clearly about uh, Exodus and the Passover, they weren't able to really have time to let any bread rise anyway, so they took the bread unleavened with them when they left. Peter. Uh, maybe because when you start yeah, maybe God just, it's like our kids, clean your room, would you? And, uh, you know, you start cleaning and eventually you clean the whole house. That's, that's not a bad idea. Yeah. Yeast spreads through the air. Anyone else? Because yeast rises. Yeast rises. Yeah. Yeast Yeast is a metaphor in Scripture for sin. Was there one more? I didn't want to miss anyone. Okay, so same thing. Yeah, so that's really interesting uh, that Masood brought that up. In the Bible, yeast is mentioned some 39 times or whatever, and almost always it's used as a metaphor for sin. But here's what I found really interesting in my study. The first time any, any command was given about yeast, about cleansing a house of yeast or, or anything like that, is right here in Exodus. There's no mention of yeast being a metaphor for sin before this. The only other time yeast is even mentioned before Exodus, before Moses, was way back in the days of Abraham, and I won't even get into that whole story, but basically it just was a mention that yeast bread was made without yeast. But it doesn't seem to make any connection between yeast and sin. So in my reading and in my Bible study, I've kind of come to the conclusion that yeast, the metaphor of, be, of yeast, be, yeast being used as a metaphor for sin had not quite yet been developed. I'm not sure that the Jews at the time would have made the connection yet. It's possible, but there's nothing in Scripture that says there was a connection to be made. So that left me wondering, then what was it that God wanted them to, to think about? What was the message of cleansing their house of yeast for seven days. What was that about? And the only thing I could think of was I had to think about yeast for a little bit. Ancient people used yeast. People today use yeast. It's a very important, very powerful fungus. It exists in every environment. There's yeast in this room right now. It causes dough to rise. You can take a small batch of dough and put yeast in it and double and triple its size, which made it very important to people because you could stretch the food 
You could make more food with less when you had yeast. It also turned liquid into alcohol. It could ferment liquid. That was important not because they wanted to drink beer all the time, although maybe they did, but it was important because when you drank alcohol or beer, the water was generally safer and, and the, the alcohol would, would cleanse the, the, the water of any harmful bacteria and things like that. Yeast also could cause infections that were very painful. My point is this. Yeast was a very common and very, uh, um, it was very pervasive in the culture and in the society. It was everywhere. And ancient peoples understood at least that much, and they used yeast on a, on a regular basis. The other thing that's really interesting to me about yeast is that, uh, it was already mentioned, is that only a little bit goes a long way. You can use a little bit of yeast and, and, and create an entire huge batch of dough. And so it's, it's very powerful. The last thing, I'm not sure if they knew this at the time, but I think they might have, is that yeast is unique to its environment. Even though it's everywhere, it takes on characteristics of the environment that it's in. That's why, foodies, sourdough bread from San Francisco is better than sourdough bread from everywhere else. Because the yeast, man, I am running into everything. Yeast is slightly different. So putting all that together, what comes into my mind, when I, when I think about when God told them, cleanse your house of yeast, because on this day I'm going to take you out of Egypt, what I hear God telling them is rid yourself, not necessarily of sin, but rid yourself of everything Egypt. In other words, God was not just trying to get the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt. He was trying to get the Egypt out of the Hebrew slaves. And I really think that that is what the festival of unleavened bread at its core, at its most basic, is what it's about. It's about ridding yourself of your past, of your former unproductive, ungodly, unsaved life. In Alcoholics Anonymous, they have a phrase. They call it dry drunk. And the term, what it means is that it's someone, it, it describes someone who has quit drinking, but they still act and think like an alcoholic. Now, they also have another word that they use, sobriety. Sobriety refers to someone who has quit drinking, <laughs> but they've also changed the way they think about alcohol. It's a, it's an, it's an inside out. It's a change of perspective. I really put before you that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is really about changing your perspective. It's an inward to outward change. It's not just about repenting of sin. It's actually about changing your perspective. And that leads to a different outcome of, of behavior. God does not want to merely make you obey. He is not in the business of just trying to get you to conform to a set of rules. What he's actually trying to do to the Israelites then and to us today is to change our perspective, to change the way we think, the way we look at things. And from that comes a change of behavior. Verse 13, 
So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. And the disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Now, Passover was coming. Remember, it's Thursday. And this is that day where it's the feast starts and Passover is that evening. And there's a lot going on. And in order to properly prepare for Passover, you had to get into the city of Jerusalem. It was required that you celebrated it in the city. Now, Jesus at the, at the time, he's still in Bethany. So he sends two disciples in to make arrangements for the meal later that night. Luke tells us, another gospel tells us that it was Peter and John that he sent into the city. Now, they had a lot to do. They had to get a lamb. They had to get that lamb over to the temple, get it sacrificed. They had to get it prepared. They had to take it back to the house. They had to secure a house. If you could imagine, the city of Jerusalem has swollen up three, four, five times its normal size. Every available house and room is, is being rented or used for the Passover meal because all these pilgrims are coming in from all over the place. It's a very busy, very crowded city. They had to secure a place. They had to set the table. They had to get the other parts of the meal, the other uh, side dishes, so to speak. Uh, there was wine. There was unleavened bread. There was bitter herbs. They had to gather all that stuff and get it into the city, find the room, and get everything set up. So there was a lot for them to do on this day. Now, what's interesting is when you read this passage, it reads to me a little bit like a miracle, or at the very least, it reads very mysteriously. The disciples don't seem to know what the plan is. So they're, hey, what's the plan, Jesus? And he goes, well, go into the city and you'll find a guy, a guy with a bottle of water, and he'll take you to another guy who has a room and tell that guy to get the owner of the house and ask that guy, if we can. It's, it's almost as if he's Italian. It literally is. I know a guy who knows a guy. You go do that. And maybe that's the case. Maybe it's totally miraculous what's happening here. And, and that's very possible. That this is a miracle. Just that Jesus could tell him what to do and everything would happen the way it said. Another possibility, though, that I find intriguing is that what's happening here is Jesus knew, if you remember from yesterday, that Judas was going to betray him. That Judas had already become a traitor. And remember, if you remember from last Sunday, sorry, not yesterday, last Sunday, the Pharisees had decided not to do anything with Jesus until after the festival. So they were waiting seven days because they wanted the crowds to leave so they could get Jesus when no crowds were around because he was very popular. It's very possible that when Judas came to the Pharisees or the, the religious leaders and he said, hey, I can tell you where and when he's going to be and you can get him, they were excited. They were going to try to snatch him much sooner. So Jesus quite possibly didn't tell the disciples anything of his plans. In fact, he might have made these plans in advance and then was just sort of telling them what they needed to know because he was keeping Judas in the dark. Either way, the point is Jesus is in control. Things are not happening outside of his, of his attention or his awareness. Whether he's doing this, this is a miraculous interaction here, or whether it's purposeful, but he's designing it to, to prevent Judas from arresting him before it's time or getting him arrested before his time. The point I want you to hear is Jesus is always in control. He's never not out of control. Verse 17, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. 
Is it one of the twelve? It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips his bread into the bowl with me, the Son of Man will go just as it's written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. So they finally make it to the meal. Jesus, uh, the, Peter and, and, and John get everything arranged, and then the, the rest of the disciples make their way into the city. And it was probably a very bustling and busy time. And he made his way. They found the, the room that they were going to stay in. They have their meal. This is the Passover meal we're talking about. This is Thursday evening. Uh, they call it a Seder is another word for the Passover meal. And at some point during the meal, Jesus makes this announcement that one of them one of the 12, one of his closest friends is a betrayer, is, gonna tr is a traitor. And, and the, the interesting thing, and you've heard this before, I'm sure, but the interesting thing, and it, it deserves being said again, is that none of them knew who it was, which tells you something about the love of Jesus. Because even though Jesus knew where Judas was at and where his heart was at and what he was going to do, Jesus didn't love Judas any less. And that's good news for many of us. And it's good news for many of our friends who are very far from God. Jesus loves them just as much as He loves someone who's very near. It's a challenge for me because it's easy to want to not love people who are far, but prefer to love people who are close to me. But Jesus sets a very, very high bar. Now, not all of the 12 loved Jesus that way, though. Judas betrayed him. Now, I need you to do me a favor. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm the messenger today. Don't throw spears at me. But I know that when we come to church, because I'm in the same boat, I want to be encouraged. I want to sing and put my hands up and see everybody else sing and hug everybody and be told I'm awesome and keep going and how great you are. And I want to do that for you. And we really need to. Church should be that. Just a few weeks ago, we talked about how this should be a place of joy. And it does need to be a place of joy. In fact, more often than not. And I'm committed to making church a place of joy for us. That we come in and we get recharged and we get re-inspired and we get patted on the back and we get out there for another 166 hours. Because it's not easy to live the Christian life. And it's not easy to be in the world all the time with all of its pressure and influence and what's going on around you. And it's, it's negative. And you want to come here and you just want to be encouraged, don't you? Don't shoot me. But I got to tell you something that is true. There are consequences for bad behavior. I would not be doing my job if I did not tell you and myself that there are consequences for bad behavior. I don't know if you've ever paid attention, but when I was studying this out, what jumped out at me was that phrase, it would be better if he had never been born. That is Jesus Christ saying that. He's talking about Judas, the betrayer. Judas made bad decisions. We've learned in the course of our study that Judas was helping himself to some of the spare change, to the, to the, to the, uh, yeah, the spare change, uh, petty cash box, so to speak. 
And those little, little indiscretions, those little moments of dipping in, of, of going back to the old yeast, his old thieving self, those things ultimately led to a really bad decision. And that decision was to betray Jesus, was to turn his back on him and become a traitor. Let me tell you, if yeast is reappearing in your life, the old yeast of your old life, if it's creeping back in and little by little, you're, 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 it's, nobody notices, you're just dipping in, you're just dipping in, you're just dipping in, at some point that's going to give birth to a really bad decision. And that bad decision has really bad consequences. Don't shoot. But we really do have to pay attention to our righteousness. We really do have to constantly be cleaning our house of the old yeast. Someone said here, it's everywhere. Yes, it's everywhere. You can be a Christian for 30 years or three days, and that yeast is always around you, and it's always there tempting you to go back. If you've been eating leavened bread lately, if you've been dipping in to the bread of the past, please stop. Talk about it, get it out, get it off your chest, and move on and clean your house. Remember, there are consequences to bad choices. Verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So now we're at the meal. This is the Passover meal. It's called a Seder. And, and for those of you that are unfamiliar, the Passover is full of ritual. There's all kinds of rituals. There's, there's, a, there's an initial foot washing in Jesus' day. There was a whole script that they followed, but there was a foot washing when you came in. There were several hand washings during the course of the night. There was uh, toasting that went on. There were prayers. There were blessings given. There were certain courses of the meal where you did certain things. I mean, there's a whole bunch of ritual that goes on here. And all of it was designed to cause them to remember, to remember Passover. The night that the Israelite slaves, the Hebrew slaves, were released from their bondage in Egypt. So we're going to go back to Exodus 12 for a minute. This is the same chapter, same section that talked about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Before it got to that, it talked about Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt, strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So the Passover, it was a... It was a time in Israel's history, way back at their beginning, really, where Moses was raised up by God to be the leader 
of the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. They had grown in Egypt over the past centuries to be a large number, several million people. And the Egyptians every, every year got more and more uncomfortable with the, the, Israel, the Hebrews living in their territory, and they eventually enslaved them. And for centuries, the, the Israelites cried out to God to be freed of their slavery because the Egyptians were treating them so badly. And finally, it was time. God was ready to free them. He raised up Moses. He gave Moses the ability to, to go and speak to Pharaoh, and, and God, through Moses, brought nine plagues onto the Egyptian people. Plagues of grasshoppers and gnats and darkness and blood and all boils, all kinds of crazy plagues. And the Egyptians, led by Pharaoh, would not get the point. They're not innocent. One plague was enough. These were plagues. These weren't bad days. These were plagues. Nine of them. One after the other. And the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts every time. Refused to give God credit. Refused to honor what God was asking them to do. And refused to let the Israelites go. So finally, the final plague, the tenth and final plague, was, was called the plague of the firstborn. God had announced that all the firstborn males in every household, including animals, would die on Nisan 14, the night of Passover. And the only way they could be rescued, the only way they would be saved, is if they took a lamb, sacrificed it, or butchered it, put its blood on their doorpost, and then that night, they had to eat the lamb in its entirety with bitter herbs, with masa, and with some wine. And that was basically it. And they had to eat it standing up because God was telling them that the next day or sometime that early that morning, they're going to be kicked out. So they ate it in haste. They couldn't leave anything left over. And then somewhere in the wee hours of Nisan 15, Friday morning, the Egyptians woke up and everyone who didn't have the blood of the lamb on their door frames inside that home, the firstborn male was dead. Brutal. But it's not without plenty of warning. They were not innocent. There was nine plagues, and they still wouldn't get it. They refused to listen to God. And so at some point, those things add up, and God has had enough. And that night, or early that morning, they woke up, found their loved ones dead, and they immediately told the Israelites, get out of here. And that's why they had to eat the meal in haste, because they had to be ready to leave that night. That's the commemoration of Passover. And so when you ate a Seder in Jesus' day, all of the, 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 the rituals in the Passover retold the story of the original Passover. That was the idea, to remember. They did it once a year, remember. Jews still do it to this day with much of the same ritual. What's interesting in our passage is that some point in the, the, the meal, Jesus took part of the ritual and told a different story. He changed its meaning. He said at one of the, one of the cups, there were four cups during the night or four toasts, you could think of it like that. At one of the cups, probably I think it was the second cup, tradition said that they would give, they would offer everybody a piece of bread and a cup of wine. And then there would be a blessing, a scripture reading from Exodus, and then everybody would share in that toast. Jesus took that cup, the one where the bread was a part of the, the toast, 
And he said, take it, this is my body, referring to the bread. Then he took a cup, he had given thanks, he gave it to him, and he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus, on this night, some 2,000 years ago, Nisan 14, Thursday night in Jerusalem, in this small little gathering of his disciples in some room that we don't know where it was exactly, Jesus put a new meaning into the Passover story. It was no longer to be remembered that God, through the blood of the Lamb, saved the Israelites in Egypt. But it was to be remembered that through the blood of Jesus, God has saved them from their slavery to sin. That's why we take communion every Sunday. We don't do it once a year. We do it every Sunday. Why? Because we want to remember. We want to remember the blood of our Lamb, Jesus Christ. By His blood, He created a new covenant between God and man. The old one ended. Jesus called its end on Monday. He announced that it, it was done and over with on Monday. And here He is on Thursday saying there's now a new covenant. There's a new special relationship between God and man. And it's not based on the blood of a lamb, but it's based on the blood of Jesus Christ. So we take communion to remember the special relationship we have with Jesus. I so appreciate our worship team and the time and energy that they put in to making that time important. It's why we've changed it. We want to focus on it. We want to emphasize it because it is so important that every Sunday we remember Jesus Christ, our first love. When I was younger, before I became a disciple, I was going to a church and I was somewhat active and I would go and after a while I got bored at the church. And I found out that I was bored mostly by the communion because I didn't totally understand it. I mean, I guess I kind of understood what it was about. I was young, probably a, a teenager, but um, it just seemed like it was unnecessary. I just wanted to get to the message. You know, okay, let me get there. What, what does the guy need to tell me? And so I stopped going to church for communion. I would just show up at the message. And I thought that was okay. Boy, was I wrong. The message is something that came after. In Christian tradition, the emphasis was on the collective worship, the collective remembering of Jesus Christ. And then afterwards, there would be words of encouragement. There would be memories from Jesus' life. There would be stories told, maybe sermons given, etc., and you know, that one little act of not going to communion, I really believe, had a massively negative effect on my life. Over time, that yeast, that old yeast from my past gave way to me giving up on God altogether for many years until my early 20s when I came to a crossroads and said, man, I need to reevaluate this. And ever since then, I've realized, oh, it's about Jesus and the most important time that I can spend every week is my time with Jesus. And there's nothing more important in that week than my time on Sunday morning where I can commune with Him. 
where I can re-engage and recommit myself to his covenant that he made with me and I can be reminded of what he did for me. So taking communion is not just a ritual. In fact, it's one of the few rituals in the Christian faith. You take Judaism, there were lots of rituals. They did all kinds of ritualistic things. I'm not saying they were bad, they just did a lot. There's a lot of faith traditions, Christian faith traditions in our world today that have a lot of rituals. They do a lot of certain things. None of them are actually in the Bible. But the one that is, is communion. That's the one time. That's the one thing that the early Christians, every time they came together, made sure they took the bread and the cup together. That they got rid of any yeast in their hearts. They got rid of any bitternesses, attitudes, criticisms, sins, whatever the case may be, but they got it all out, and then they came together weekly to remember Jesus Christ So that's what Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread is really all about. You know, if you're new to our fellowship or maybe you'd like to just learn more, please see me afterwards. I'm happy to sit down and teach you more about the ministry of Jesus Christ his message, and his ministry. If you don't know me and you're uncomfortable, talk to the person that invited you. I'm sure they'll get you started on the road. But the main thing that I want us to walk away with is to not be like our pastor at the beginning of the story, the beginning of my speech, who forgot the most important part of his punchline, the most important part of his opening line. We cannot forget the most important part of our coming together. It is to remember Jesus Christ and to renew our love and our covenant with Him. This time I'm going to stand on up. We'll close out in a word of prayer and you'll be dismissed.